I moved to Minnesota from San Francisco in the middle of the winter of 1996. Ooh. My friends thought I was crazy. <laughs> I'd been called to serve as the canon for youth and young adult ministries in the Episcopal Diocese of Minnesota, a jurisdiction that covers the whole state. I'll never forget my first trip north to the White Earth Reservation. It's a four-hour drive northwest of the Twin Cities. I was making my way through the Central Valley and Central Minnesota with a very, very heavy heart. A new Ojibwe ministry colleague, Bill, a man I'd come to admire in a few short months and enjoy tremendously at diocesan youth gatherings and church-wide events, had lost his teenage son. Another victim of despair in a forgotten world of strained resources and struggle. I was driving to his wake and I would stay two nights until his funeral. That was also the first time that I heard the name of Enmagabo. It was clear from the moment I set foot on the white earth land that the Ojibwe people, Christian and not, were drawing strength in their grief from the legacy of this particular elder, a person they described to me when I asked as holy and brave. Even the youngest kids seemed to know his name and could say it well, and the fact that he was a Christian who clearly respected traditional ways was not lost on me. Enmagabo was born in 1807 in Canada. He lived his entire life weaving together his indigenous faith and Christianity. Through his own experiences of injustice, Enmagabo seemed to take from Christianity what felt empowering and true and reject that which was not. As a young deacon and then the first known Native American priest in the Episcopal Church, Emigabo is described as an icon of what it means to be a peacemaker, to live a nimble and liberating faith. So there I was in 1996, 94 years after Emigabo's death, and several more before he would be voted into the calendar of saints of the Episcopal Church. And still Emigabo was bringing peace to a broken community. As an angry, grieving grandfather yelled at the casket, I heard a young man off to the side say quietly, be at peace, John. We are the people of Emagabo. We are strong and we do not give up. Emagabo received his share of hatred. He was unwelcome for a long time among some Ojibwe groups because he warned the white community at Fort Ripley about the upcoming 1862 Sioux uprising. And in so doing, he prevented the massacre of hundreds of people. Emagabo understood that being a godly person meant being fair-minded and prudent, even when there was personal cost. Through years when the mission work which to which he had been called seemed to be at a standstill, Emigabo received invitations from his birthland in Canada to go, quote, where comfort and hopeful work awaited him. <laughs> but with the Episcopal Bishop Whipple's encouragement, he stayed where he was. 
standing in the forefront for an unpopular cause and a hated people for the sake of a gospel, of the gospel. He did not desert his people. When around 1870, the government moved 700 Ojibwe people to 36 square miles just outside of Bemidji, Minnesota, to what is now known as the White Earth Reservation, Emigabo began a new mission. In 1872, Bishop Whipple consecrated the church and the parsonage on a Thursday evening. And according to historian Alvin Wilcox, quote, Friday morning, the chief signified to the bishop their wish to meet with him in a council, which was therefore held that afternoon on the hillside in front of the church. It was a picturesque scene, the lovely landscape, the sunlight glancing through the tall oak trees on the bishop and on Emigabo, who sat in the center, the chiefs and five or six clergymen grouped around. Behind the bishop, three chairs were placed for ladies of the party. The first time, I think, that ladies were ever admitted to an Indian council. The chiefs spoke in turn as they had themselves arranged and were interpreted by Enmagabo. Enmagabo was consistently a man of peace who proved the fitness of his native name, the one who stands before his people. Or yet more beautifully, he that prays for his people while standing is commemorated today. Is it any surprise that the creators of the lectionary chose the Sermon from the Plains from Luke 6 for this occasion? Unlike Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes up the mountain, emphasizing that the teachings are coming from God, here, according to biblical scholar Roland Allen, the description of a level place, a plain, refers to places of corpses, disgrace, idolatry, suffering, misery, hunger, annihilation, and mourning. Jesus, like Emigabo, was standing in front of his people, teaching about the ways of the reign of God in the midst of the very present danger. Christians are called to live in the present, practicing values and the economy of the realm of God. The eschaton is no easy reach, and the challenge of that is made clear for me in the sequence of the events in this gospel passage. In the verses just ahead of today's reading, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and to discern. In the morning, he called his disciples together, and he named 12 to be his apostles. It is with those 12 that Jesus came down to the level place to meet the great crowd who had come from all over the region to be healed of diseases and freed from unclean spirits. I think it matters that before Jesus uttered a word of blessing, he cured the sick and cast out demons. Think about it. Before we promise to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must renounce the things that separate us from God neighbor, and self. Look at the examination in the Episcopal service of holy baptism. There are three jarring renunciations followed by three commitments of affirmation. Do, the, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? 
Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? Can we just agree that despite the beauty and the celebratory nature of most baptismal services for people of any age, adorable babies in that inherited white gown, a teenage boy standing awkwardly in that suit that doesn't really fit, a tattooed young adult who's mesmerized by the ritual, beaming grandparents, proud godparents, words like Satan and evil and sinful hang awkwardly and vulnerably in the air. In my experience, even where there has been good preparation for baptism, the words of Satan and evil are rarely spoken. And it becomes very obvious to me in that moment in the liturgy. We skip over renunciation to get to the affirmation. And I get it. I really get it. It's hard and it's vulnerable to talk about darkness. It kind of sucks to name our sins. In a church so desperate to grow, in a church that wants so much for people to love us and know Jesus, it is so tempting to become people who want to lead with the light. Of all that I have seen and studied about baptism, however, I have become absolutely convinced that we are denying the very life-changing power of the sacrament by taming it. Notice that Jesus expels demons and heals illness before he begins one of the most well-known litanies of blessing in the New Testament. The Sermon on the Plain teaches us that we must deal with our darkness to make room for the blessings. And then, only then, will we manifest the values and practices of the reign of God in the midst of the level places of life. Emma Gabo knew this. He knew throughout his life the moment when he turned away from God and made a choice to turn back. When he attempted to abandon his missionary work and return to Canada, he was in a boat on Lake Superior and he had a vision. A storm came up and Jonah appeared to him a story he told throughout his ministry. Jonah said, you, Emagabo, have sinned. You have disobeyed God. My friend Bill knew that the only way through his suffering was to seek the healing that he needed. He didn't pretend that his, die, his son had died mysteriously. He named the evil powers of depression. He named the destructive effects of alcohol. He named his own shortcomings and his struggles as a single father. He renounced the spiritual forces of wickedness that led his son to lose hope. He named suicide. And as the hours and days passed, I watched in awe as Bill began to piece together his own faith in God, as he reclaimed the promises that he had made at baptism, and slowly and carefully and methodically led his community back to life. He built hope on his renunciations. Like Jesus, he found a place of solid ground on which to ascend toward glory. Blessed are the poor, Blessed are you who are hungry now. 
Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Blessings empower souls. Renunciation disempowers evil. I believe we need a revival of renunciation, at least in the Episcopal Church. The baptismal vows begin there for a reason. If in the most beautiful moments of baptism in community, where we can hear the water being poured into the font, we can smell the oil waiting, and we can see the community affirming, and we do not feel safe to renounce evil in that womb of wonder, how will we ever, ever, have the courage to renounce evil in the dark alleys of debt, of white supremacy, of abuse, of war, of shame, of betrayal, of failure. If we cannot confidently renounce this darkness that is surrounding us, our faith will be frail in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If we do not form new disciples to renounce the wolves, we lead the sheep to slaughter. Formation takes bravery. The truth will set us free. As the gospel reminds us, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is in heaven.